Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Brian Riley, founder of Will Ventures. Will Ventures is a venture capital fund that focuses exclusively on leveraging the power of sport to help shape the future. In this episode, as you could imagine, you'll learn about sports technology, health and wellness innovation, and what's next in media and content, and how his upbringing really helped shape them as an investor. This was a wonderful conversation with Brian. Without further ado, here he is. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am fantastic. No complaints. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan. I've been listening for a while, so I'm pumped to join. Oh, please. Thanks so much, man. I'm so excited for you to come on the show. I want to start from the very beginnings. I know you played football growing up and you know, looking at your career thus far, was it your idea to always think about how you could remain close to sports? It's an interesting question. You're not the first one to ask me that, actually. And the, the answer is not really, actually. You know, I think what sports did for me early on was get me interested in health, right? You know, sports from a very young age got me thinking about what I ate, how long I slept, how I recovered. Um, and so I was very cognizant of these sorts of things growing up as a young athlete. And so those naturally became my passions. You know, that's what I would think about and, and read about on my own time. And so I, I think you can sort of see that trend throughout my professional career as well. You know, I've been a product manager at a digital health company. I've researched and advised on health-oriented companies. And, and now I spend at least half of my time, you know, really good chunk of my time investing in consumer health companies. So playing sports, you know, had certainly a huge impact on my career and professional interests, but maybe not in exactly the way you'd expect what was your attraction then to venture capital and innovation and just honestly just being around entrepreneurs? For me, my attraction to venture capital was really more an, an attraction to entrepreneurship, right? You know, the idea that you can take a risk and work hard and create something from nothing, that's really incredible to me, right? I, I think in a lot of ways, that's the American dream, right? Upward mobility. And so I kind of look at it like this, life is short, so if you're in a position to, to take a risk, you've got to do it, right? You know, I, I've been fortunate enough to do so or be put in that position and it's been incredibly fulfilling for me, right? So that's what I want to continue to surround myself with is those sorts of people who hold those sorts of ideals. And, and venture capital is a way for me to achieve some time leverage, right? I can contribute as much to entrepreneurship as fast as possible in my seat as a VC. And I, I feel super fortunate for the opportunity to do so because I grew up in a family where you just did what you had to, to put food on the table and clothes on your backs. Right. You know, my, both my mom and dad held down tough labor intensive jobs, right. Work was something that you endured, right. You didn't always have the privilege of enjoying it. So counter to that, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. You know, I get to do what I'm passionate about and help smart, ambitious, hardworking people get their dreams off the ground. I mean, 
Now, how beautiful is that? So that's why I, I really approach this job with a, a deep level of gratitude. At the end of every call, I, I always try to remember to thank entrepreneurs for the opportunity, you know, to learn about what they're building because I, I really do mean it sincerely. It's not something I just say. I appreciate that I'm in a position of privilege, right? Like I am in a position where I can have outsized impact on the lives of an entrepreneur. And I think, you know, that's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a position of privilege. You know, how can you not be attracted to that opportunity? Absolutely. So thinking about risk and thinking about, okay, life's too short. Why did you decide to be in a position right now as an investor um, instead of actually starting your own company and building your own company and being an entrepreneur yourself? Part of that is rooted in the background of sort of the journey to date, right, to this venture capital fund. Because, I mean, partly the short answer is we had conviction. You know, my co-founder Isaiah and I saw something that we thought that others didn't, and we wanted to capitalize on that opportunity to invest in this space because we thought these areas of consumer health and media and entertainment that we focus on were undercapitalized, right, and underdeveloped. And I think that's how most companies start, right? It's the founders identify some gap in the market and feel so compelled by it that, you know, you've got to start something. And, and that was our story. Right. We saw opportunity in consumer health and in digital media, and we felt like we had this unique insight and differentiated network and the work ethic to pull it off. And, and so, you know, before our first fund, I know I've said this to you before, but it, it felt like we had to build awareness in areas like connected fitness, health and wellness and gaming. Those markets all seem very obvious now, but, but years ago they didn't. So I think it, it started with that conviction. But to give you more insight into that, it really was a stepwise function throughout my career that led me to starting World Ventures with my co-founder. So I met Isaiah over 11 years ago. And, and so we met at this company called MC10. Uh, it was a startup that I joined while I was, I was still an undergrad. And I was still in college and my co-founder had joined the following business school. And so that company, MC10, was a critical step for us. Because that's what set the idea of Will Ventures in motion. And so it set me on this path to being an investor, really, because for one, it inspired this thesis that sports are an ideal proving ground for consumer health and media technologies. And to give you more context on that, at MC10, we were building ultra conformal wearables, right? So instead of like an Apple Watch, think of something that looks more like a band aid, you can put it anywhere in your body, tell you things like your activity, your heart rate, your muscle activation, your temperature, right? And, and what was interesting about that is that on one hand, we were building the, those devices for elite athletes and health and wellness, right? To monitor things like fatigue and workload, et cetera. And then on the other hand, you're we're building applications for chronically ill patients, right? So that they can monitor their symptoms and doctors could more precisely dial in their medicine, right? And so this is actually what MC10 was eventually acquired for. It's, it was applications in precision medicine. But what we were inspired by were how these products that we were building, which eventually had a lot of success in healthcare, were pressure tested by elite athletes. And looking back, it made total sense, right? Elite athletes, you know, they had the money to afford it ahead of typical consumers. They're financially incentivized to try the latest and greatest tech. You know, their body is their business. It's literally their job to optimize their recovery and performance. So they want to try the latest and greatest tech. And then lastly, it's just a lot faster selling into sports and fitness than it is selling into hospitals and provider systems. So we felt like through this experience at MC10, um, we had uncovered this really interesting go-to-market strategy 
for consumer health companies to, to start in sports and then expand. And I think there's a lot of precedents now in the market that have taken this playbook. And this was, you know, 2011, when lots of health and wellness innovation was coming to market. And it was also the beginning of quantified self, digital health, and more generally the idea that, you know, healthcare was moving outside of the four walls of the hospital. So we figured as more of this innovation came to market, sports could be similarly continue to be an ideal proving ground. And so we studied this trend, right, as entrepreneurs at the time building these products, we looked back at this trend and saw that there's a repeating pattern, right? You know, in healthcare, things like arthroscopic surgery and x-ray machines have been pressure tested within elite sports moves into healthcare. In consumer, things like fitness and nutrition, I mean, sports nutrition being a great example, started with elite athletes and really gone on to revolutionize consumer nutrition. And then when we looked at media, eventually saw the same dynamic, you know, commercials, streaming on your radio or your laptop, augmented reality, all of these things were pressure tested in sports in this case, because it's a live audience. It's such a rabid fan base, right? So we felt like we had this unique insight to what could be a really interesting proving ground for technology in the same way that NASA or the military, you know, there, a lot of their innovations go on to sort of ripple throughout society. We thought sports could, you had played a similar role over the last handful of decades. And so ultimately what it came down to, to go back to your question of, of why take the risk, why be, you know, a VC, we wanted to capitalize on what we felt like was, was a huge opportunity. We wanted to start a fund, right? But at that time, we didn't feel like we were ready to do it. But this is, you know, Will Ventures is the name we've had for quite some time. And the idea of starting a fund is something we thought about for quite some time. But for us, we, we didn't know everything at the time, but we knew it's competitive. How are you going to move the needle for entrepreneurs? Why should they take your money? What unique insight did you have? We wanted to earn the right to a point of view to invest, you know, where we had passion across consumer health, media, and entertainment. And so to address those doubts and those concerns, we helped build a research and advisory firm called the Sports Innovation Lab, which is sort of like a pitch book or a CB Insights for sports and fitness tech that still operates in Boston. But so we had gone from MC10, where we were building these products as entrepreneurs, to then being researchers, consultants, and advisors to most, you know, many of the largest corporate acquirers in the space, helping them think through their product strategies, helping them think through competitive landscapes and acquisition targets. You know, that helped us get sharper. That helped us crystallize our thesis. Um, you know, when your job is to study thousands of companies across markets that we now invest in, that just sort of gives you a prepared mind and it allows you to invest thematically because you've got that hard fought research and expertise. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's VC is something that a lot of people or even young kids or whatever, it's something you're always thinking about that you want to start, you want to take the risk to do. But the journey led here from an early day, right, where, where we had gotten this unique insight at a startup firm. And we said, how, what's the way to get there? How can we pull this off? And so we, we took that methodical journey to launch World Ventures. That's really impressive. What I find most interesting is you went from working at a, a startup um, in MC10 and you and your co-founder then actually built a thesis around which what you were seeing at the startup. And instead of saying, you know, maybe it might be best for us to start a company in maybe one of these areas, whether it's telehealth, connected fitness, uh, sports or media, maybe it actually might be just be better to start a fund where we can take advantage of all this thesis and really build out what our thesis is to take advantage of all these opportunities or ideas that we're seeing already kind of swell, um, early swell in the market, if that's fair to say. 
It is fair to say. And you know what? I think it was, it goes back to this idea of time leverage. It's not like we saw just one opportunity that we were hell bent on. We said, we got to do this thing. It was that there's so much opportunity, right? Yeah, this is like pre Twitch exit or Peloton, right? So there weren't those big comps yet. And so early on, it was like, man, this is definitely going as, as media continues to get more personalized is health and wellness goes more towards the consumer. There's going to continue to be these opportunities, right? And I, Isaiah and I would look at angel investment opportunities together and just seeing the breadth of those, that's really what convinced us. The best way, the most leveraged way to go after this is to start a fund. And actually, to your point of like, it wasn't the thought of to start a company in so many ways. And I think a lot of people don't know this, it's starting a venture capital firms, so much like starting a product company right? You have so many of those same considerations. And I think it's different given what stage you are at your career, right? If you've you've got a lot of exits under your belt or you've been a successful VC at another larger firm and you spin out, that's a different sort of consideration. But for the time when we first started raising our first fund, I was 28, right? And so I was a young guy without a lot of money and like you're taking those risks, you're traveling around three or four days a week to go meet with investors and it's a lot of financial risk uh, because you're not making a salary until you close that fund, right? So it's a lot, it's the same sort of stress and tenacity that's required to start a product company. What was some of the strategy? Because I know we do have listeners that are thinking about raising a fund, want to learn more about what are maybe the ins and outs of that process. Sure. And and so I think part of the question goes after just like, what's it like to be young and doing that? And then just more generally, you know, what's required to do that. And I think to the young question, it, I think it's hard. And I think whether you're starting a product company or trying to start a fund early, I think you face the same sort of imposter syndrome that everyone talks about, which is like, should I be in this seat? Right. And again, going, you know, for me as a, someone who's a first generation college student, no one in my family was in this world, right? This was all new to me. You, I, I think you're certainly faced with that imposter syndrome, right? But I, I think one of the things that gave me a lot of comfort is I remember speaking to an older founder of a VC firm who had also started a now you know multi-decade firm when he was 28. And he told me, he said, I think it's sort of silly for both entrepreneurs and when you're raising a fund that people get a lot of flack for being young, right? Thinking you haven't earned your stripes. But the fact of the matter is, is any job is really just having the confidence to be a critical thinker, a critical and independent thinker. And that skill is developed by the time you're a young adult. And so I think experience is important. And I'm not trying to make little of of having experience. I think it's so important. But I, I think having the confidence to step back and make a critical decision, that's the important thing. And I think that's really earned, right? That confidence is earned by putting yourself out there and taking those meetings and having a lot of hard meetings where people ask you questions you're not comfortable with. And so I think the biggest thing is just getting started, right? And making sure that you don't lose the, not the motivation, but the fire in your belly, because you know this really is what our name speaks to, Will Ventures, which is this idea of willpower, right? Which is the idea that it's going to get hard when you start something. There's so much inertia. And I, I felt this as a young founder, it's just, it's just tough getting something off the ground. And so you've got to be able to stomach a lot of no's, right? You've got to be able to stomach a lot of self-doubt, you know, peer, you know, doubt from your peers, your family members, and just continue to push through. And so I think a lot of that is just having a sort of resoluteness about what you're doing um, and being really passionate about uh, what you're doing. 
How do you think about what your edge is when you're founding Will Ventures? And obviously we'll dive into more about Will Ventures, but you know, like I had on like Soraya Darabi, right? Who had an amazing angel track record before starting a fund and also was um, a serial entrepreneur and a very, very successful entrepreneur. Um, and then I had, you know, like Mike Duda, who came from a brand background. Um, I mean, he's like a brand guru. And his competitive advantage when it came to founders was also really actually um, also on the branding side too. He also runs like a brand consultancy too out of Bullish. What do you think, even like pitching investors were just more maybe broadly speaking in terms of Will, like the edge that you provide at Will Ventures to, uh, to founders? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things, right? Um, I think one is that we've got a particular focus, right? And, and again, going over things like human performance markets, about half of our time, things like fitness and nutrition and mindfulness. And then the other you know, big chunk of our time is media and entertainment, things like gaming and esports, streaming, social, those sorts of things, right? And I think having a focus allows you to bet a little bit earlier, more reliably, because I think, you know, look, there's an end to win deals because venture capital is competitive. There's more and more capital in the early stage, right? And so if you're not a differentiated firm with a unique perspective and a differentiated network, one, you're not going to win deals, right? Two, you're not going to attract opportunities to yourself. And then three, you're not really going to be able to move the needle for an entrepreneur. I think the fact that we sit at the intersection of these two really massive, you know, large growing markets, but we've got a network that uniquely can aid with those, those markets, right? Access to leagues and teams and rights holders and gaming publishers that can move the needle in a specific way, in a focused way for those sorts of firms. So I think Number one is, is just having some sort of focus and in, in, in investing where we have expertise. Related to that, I think we're research-backed, right? Our, our DNA is in research, having studied thousands of companies across all the areas that we invest in now, um, knowing those competitive landscapes, knowing that funding information, what those products look like. That's sort of a prepared mind, right? So when we see... Um, when we see an opportunity, we are coming in there with a lot of background context, right? We know a lot of the existing competitors. We know a lot of the history in that space. It allows us to make decisions faster and drive down on diligence a little quicker. So I'd say being research-backed and being thematic investors is a big part. Having been entrepreneurs in this space, launching products in these spaces also makes a big difference because we know how to navigate these stakeholders. We know what it's like to build those sorts of product teams and get a product to market. You know, I think that's a big differentiator. And so outside of that, right? Cause those are all really like, you've got to build that edge, you know, so research backed we're thematically focused, you know, we're institutionally backed, we're anchored by two large endowments. I think we're very proud of that because it's very rare for a first time fund. The last thing I'll say though, and again, going back to our culture is we're just, we're hungry. We, again, going back to that startup mentality, because a lot of firms, I think when they first come out, there's like a, everyone talks about track record in VC for good reason. So early on when new VC funds come about, like people want to position themselves as if they've been around for a while and they've, they've got that track record, right? We know we're a startup firm and we think that's an advantage because we could look at an entrepreneur in the face and say, we are as hungry as you are. You know, we want to build something special just like you. So let's do that together because we're going to work our butts off to create value because that's what it's going to take us to be successful. So I think that hustler mentality is in our DNA. And not that this is a prerequisite, but you know, so far everyone on our team is at least a college athlete. 
So we've got that sort of competitive DNA within our firm too. Do you ever sometimes think we know this space so well, we actually don't think that this is the right solution for this problem, even though this problem might be a large problem, but we bet on this founder that they're going to figure it out. Or being, since you're so thematic, you maybe might think, we, you know, maybe we actually do have some of these answers and maybe this is not, you're almost in some ways could miss opportunities because you might overthink what the solution could be um, rather than let the founder figure it out. Does that kind of make sense? It does. And it's a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, you're right. As an early stage investor, it's a lot more art than science, right? More often than not, there's not enough revenue for it to be obvious that this is the company with the traction and blah, 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 blah. You're betting on people a lot of times. And so to your point, we research markets, we research pain points, right? We do a ton of thematic work and we work with corporate partners. You know, over the course of our career, we've developed a close network of over hundred of these large corporates and digging deep into the sorts of pain points they have as major CPG companies, as major media companies, major health and wellness companies, right? To really dive deep and understand those pain points. That's what's driving our, our investment activity is how does this map in the market, these pain points? It's less solution oriented, meaning we, we have those ideas of how to solve it, but you've got to keep an open mind. You got to let the entrepreneur be the expert and educate you on how they think they should solve it. And so we come in with, we love this, this problem. We've seen it a million times. We've talked to large corporate acquirers and agree with you on this problem. How are you going to solve it? Right. And so you've got to keep an open mind on that part of the equation. But to your question too, about people, you know, we've got to buy into the solution. Do we think it's a must have, but more than anything, we've got to buy into the person. Right? Like, is this the person to bet on? So often we'll have an area that we love, right? You know, market X, we love market X. We're going to research it and we're going to understand the pain points in the companies in this market. And we're going to get to know all of those companies. And then we want to bet on the best person. That That is sort of our approach. So given kind of like a, a top-down approach per se, right? Where you do a ton of research, a ton of thematic research, which is um, awesome. What's the sourcing process like? Like, you know, maybe what problems you or areas that you want to place your bets in, but how do you go out and find those entrepreneurs that are building the products that are solving those problems? That's a great question. I think for us, it's in market developing thought leadership and trust, right? Convincing others that you do have a deep understanding of these markets so that other co-investors be they institutional firms or corporate investors, turn to you for your thoughts and your partnership on deals so that university partners turn to you first, right, for your partnership on deals so that angels immediately when they see something in your sector go, wow, Will Ventures would be a great partner there. It's really activating that network and and building that trust with people. That's what it comes down to. And then I think over time too, you mentioned branding earlier, I think, it, it's, you know, it's, it's building that brand and, and having, I mean, that's one of the most exciting things for us that have been really working hard throughout Fund One is seeing entrepreneurs starting to work their network to get in touch with us throughout Fund One has been very, you know, exciting um, for us too. Of your big themes, which maybe has the most opportunity right now you think, or that you're most focused on, if that's fair to say, like, obviously we've seen such a rise in connected fitness, 
right? When it comes to sports media, I mean, like over time, like just, I know Ray's like a massive round and I know they're going to also build their own high school league, which is freaking awesome. What right now, of some of your themes that you think that right now today um, has the biggest opportunity? Yeah, this is, this, is, this is like asking someone to pick their favorite kid here. This is a tough one. Let me give you an example on the health and wellness side. I'll give you one on the media side because there's actually an investment on the media side that, that we're really excited about too. But on the health and wellness side, and I, this is where I spent a lot of my time thinking. It's, a, it's about human in the loop healthcare, which is how you're leveraging specialists to democratize healthcare, right? So again, we've been working in this space for so long, over a decade, when this whole movement of innovation outside of the four walls of the hospital. It's sort of like, how is healthcare going to be unbundled? Big part of our thesis is by leveraging specialists, often underpaid and underutilized by the healthcare system, to lead remote programs, to extend care to greater patients, right? To provide them some leverage, right? So if you think of some specific examples, think of like a dietitian or a physical therapist, highly educated and specialized healthcare workers that don't make a ton of money, right? And so how can we use software to enable them to see more patients, make it more convenient for patients, better consumer experience, right? And then enable these specialists to make supplementary income. Um, I think a lot of healthcare is going to be unbundled this way because this is not a new problem. And there's a lot of these folks that we can leverage. So, you know, to this point, I think our investments in someone like Future, a remote fitness um, company that leverages really high credentialed strength coaches is one great example. And another company called LO, which is focused on precision nutrition that leverages dietitians um, to sell personalized supplements and food catered to each um, individual's unique physiology. That's another great example. Another area that I think I'm particularly excited about just because this is a new investment, if that's okay, I can give you a specific company. So it's a, a company called Just Women's Sports actually. It is essentially building like the ESPN for women's sports. And I bring this up because I think it's unique. I mean, one, it's recent for us. But two, I think it's unique because a lot of firms it, it avoid media, right? Like traditional media. Because you mentioned overtime, it got me thinking of this. And, um, and I love what overtime is building, right? I know a lot of those investors. And um, as a firm, we say no to most media. But we really saw what Just Women's Sports is building that ESPN for women's sports, we thought that was an outsized opportunity we had to strike on because we see a lot of parallels to early ESPN. When you look back on that story, in the late 1980s, you know, the founders of ESPN, they struggled to convince investors that there was demand for a 24-7 sports network, right? And I, I think it's safe to say that now ESPN is, you know, an over $50 billion company has proved those investors wrong. And, and so in that same way, there was a lot of investors when this company, just when sports went out, that thought, you know, there's not enough demand for, for women's sports, but, but we don't buy that because there's nearly a 50-50 gender split when it comes to sports participation, right? But only 4% of media coverage is dedicated to women's sports. And to us, that's, that's an insane gap. That's a venture scale gap, right? And a venture scale opportunity. And that's why we were so excited to, to partner with just women's sports because there's the dynamics are that there's this post-Title IX generation, right? And those not familiar with Title IX, it was basically federal law that mandated that equal spending, you know, it mandated a number of things, but one of them was that there must be equal spending and opportunity for female athletes as male athletes, right? And so it's made it such that there's this even participation in sports now between male and female. But so now there's this post 
Title IX generation of female athletes have nowhere to go to watch their counterparts, right? To watch the sports they grew up playing. And that's crazy to me. That's crazy to Will Ventures, right? ESPN, again, built a $50 billion plus company off the backs of men's sports, right? And it took them work. You know, they had to secure media rights. They had to tell the stories, right? And invest in the content production. But they really built that market into what it is. Uh, you know, originally it was fragmented media rights. Not a lot of the games got showed. Sports really didn't have that same role on linear cable or more generally in media. And so we think Just Women Sports can do that same thing, right? And pull together that ecosystem. And, and when I look at this just objectively, you know, I, I look at it in this way, which sports are the, one of the most valuable media assets, period, right? Yet one half of them, one half of that opportunity, women's sports, are underfunded and under-monetized. And so at the end of our day, right, our, our job is to be objective and drive returns. And I think that's why sometimes investors are slow to back media because it could be a little slower growth. The multiples aren't the same as traditional tech. But I, I think the bet is that even if you're close, right, even if you're close on the assumption that there's similar fandom for female athletes as there are, are for male athletes, you can build a multi-billion dollar company if even if you're close, right? Again, with ESPN being a great, a great comp there. I know you spoke a little bit about invested in media and a lot of investors don't really invest in media startups because as you say, I mean, it takes a long time to, I think, see, to realize revenue. I think to Tim Cott about this um, at TAC when he came on the show, but I want to also get your perspective on investing in like sports-oriented products. I mean, I remember talking to like one entrepreneur even a couple weeks ago and he's building a uh, sports uh, like gaming company or, or analyst company. And he says that still like a lot of investors is kind of niche in terms of finding the right investor for it because a lot of investors aren't really interested in sports-oriented businesses. Do you agree? And if so, why Why do you think that? Well, so on one hand, like I agree, but so you mentioned gaming. I mean, I, I spend a lot of my time in gaming. I think there's so much activity there, right? With a massive market opportunity. How are we enabling gamers to interact and form new, new communities online? Um, you know, there's a lot of activity there, but there's still some fundamental pain points that need to be addressed, like toxicity and matchmaking. I think that's a massive market. And, and so maybe not the example I would think of necessarily, but I, when you do look back in time, and you know, thinking about because because we get this sometimes, right? We're sports centric oriented, and so it's sort of like, is that niche, right? And, and we loved changing people's minds about this, which is we come into a meeting and you, that LP that you haven't met, you might be thinking, ah, oh, this this is small the way they're thinking about this. And I think the reason people might be oriented that way is because. When you look back, investing in sports has historically meant investing in professional teams or media rights, right? And then more recently to your question, it's also come to mean investing, you know, sports tech, right? To some people, that means investing in the products and services sold to elite athletes, to teams, to professional leagues. And these opportunities haven't really attracted a ton of venture capital investment because the markets are relatively small, right? If you're just selling to elite athletes. And so the potential returns don't outweigh the risks of early stage investment, right? And so I think because of that, sometimes the sports market is dismissed as a niche, but that's that's not at all what we're doing, right? We're, we're really trying to leverage sport. When we're, we're, we say we're sports centric, that more speaks to the value that we bring as investors, right? We leverage sports as a proving ground, right? We leverage our relationships with leagues, teams, right holders, corporates, gaming publishers. And we do so to accelerate and to market and to prove out technologies, right? 
we want to take a consumer health company and have athletes serve as early adopters, but then we need that to scale to a more general consumer health company, that big adjacent market. We talk about adjacencies a lot. We would love a streaming platform that's pressure tested with some sports rights, some media rights, because it's a great place to start, but how do you scale beyond that oftentimes, right? So we've been working hard to redefine what it means to be a sports focused investment firm. And again, you know, for starters, that just means for us not investing in traditional sports media. It's it's leveraging those and making that clear to entrepreneurs. As we move out of COVID, because um, I've actually gotten a mixed response from this, are you comfortable with companies that are being fully remote that are maybe are across the US or even maybe already global um, in terms of their workforce? I've also had some investors say that I we love companies that are all kind of can be in one room all together and figure out you know the problems they need to uh, solve. Our perspective is this: we are backing people. We're as minority venture capital investors. You know, we love our preference is always to lead or co-lead, so we do take board seats a lot of the time. But we're backing people and trusting their judgment. We're not trying to run the company. We're trying to amplify what they're doing in corporate development and business development and marketing. We're trying to leverage our network and expertise in those ways. But those decisions on how they're building culture, how they're building a strong team, you know, I, I think that's really up to the entrepreneurs because it's never a one size fits all and it's all situational. So I think you've got to be supportive of what works best for that team. And I think to your point, sometimes early on when you're, if you've got founders that don't know each other well, Right or, or an early team that hasn't worked together previously, it's probably helpful to be together because you're building culture and it's different knowing someone in person than just over Zoom, right? But again, if you've got a ton of experience together, you've worked as a team before, or you've scaled up a little bit, right? And that core team has set that culture and now you're just adding remote people. I, I think that we're going to see a lot more of that. And in some ways, I think that's going to be table stakes. And you know, I, I think over the last decade or two with the proliferation of VC, We've seen this like benefits war of like late stage companies of trying to offer this and that to attract talent. I think offering a flexible workplace environment is going to become table stakes for a lot of successful um, companies. Yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of the steps, in terms of hiring and in terms of the actual table stakes parts. But, you know, it is tough because when you're in person, you can also develop a culture. I know there's now a number of startups that are building products to try to build culture remotely. But as you say, there's always trade-offs between the two. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? There's a lot of momentum behind the obvious one, which is a lot of the inequities or inequalities of how of where venture funding is dispersed, right? And I think we've always tried to be mindful of it. It's not something that has been front and center with our marketing, but you know, since day one, the vast majority of or at least half of our, our founders, founding teams have an under underrepresented founder, right? So I, I think that's that's the obvious answer and something that needs to change. But thankfully there's been work done and more funding going that way. And I think of someone like Jared Tingle and the, the folks at Harlem Capital, Jared and I went to high school together and some of the work they're doing, like that's incredible. And we want to see more of that. So I think on the macro level, that's a big one. And that's an important one. On a practical level, something that's just sort of annoying that I think is, is great that the pandemic is going to fix is the need to always travel, right? Which is to say, and we felt this as, trying to raise capital, which is you have so many first meetings, 
you know, as an entrepreneur, when you're raising capital, as a fund manager, when you're raising capital, that five minutes into the first meeting, you're like, this isn't going to work. This isn't a good fit. Right. And it's like, now I think everyone's going to be okay with replacing that with a zoom call. Like let's bet this over zoom as we get more into this, let's meet in person. That is a very practical, basic thing that I'm excited to see change in our industry. Um, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Professionally, I would say a recent book that I read actually, which is Obsessed by Emily Hayward. She's the founder of Red Antler, um, which is you know a best-in-class branding agency. She has actually worked at some of our portfolio companies. I've not had the privilege of meeting Emily, but personally, I love thinking about the power of brands. I think part of that's having spent time in marketing and product management. And actually, you know, back going back, kind of tying this into your question of things that could change within VC. A lot of VCs like to ask about certain tech or products and get hung up on, you know, how is this defensible? And my personal stance is that's kind of silly because anyone can really build anything nowadays, right? So until something has real network effects or unless it's legitimate deep tech or health tech, nothing's really defensible, right? It's about execution or put differently team and brand. I think brand can really become defensible if built right. And I think Emily, given her vantage point from Red Antler, um, where she's contributed to a lot of uh, incredible companies, has some particularly interesting case studies of exactly that, right? And just more generally, I love her sense of humor. So great read. On the personal front, this is a a, a more intense example, but it's a book that's really stuck with me. And I've read it a couple of times over, which is um, Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl. And, and so it's a, it's a novel about his experiences as a, a prisoner in a concentration camp during World War II. And so in some ways, it's like, you know, it's a short book, but it's, it's tough to read sometimes because of how intense it is, right? But it also offers really deep perspective on, on what it means to persevere, right? It's in a really, probably the most extreme example of how to make it through the most insane adversity imaginable and how to find meaning despite those circumstances. So I I think in some ways, again, it's this intense book, but it offers great perspective and and can really be inspiring to see how he, you know, rises above this, the suffering. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? So the most recent investment I actually, I, I just mentioned was just women's sports. But another uh, a recent investment that I could mention that I'm also very excited about is also a company that's in the media and entertainment space. It's a company called Looped Live. Um, and Looped is um, a company based out of New York. And essentially, they are in the virtual venue space, right? Really thinking about how do we enable creators to monetize their content? And there's obviously been a lot of tailwinds in this space over the last you know year or two, right? And, and more competition in this space. But one of the things we really love about them is that there's been some companies in this space that have been vertically focused, whether it be on music or whatever, right? And I think those are interesting to us, but as society re- resumes, right? And then sort of the pandemic subsides, thank goodness. I, I think there's gonna be pent up demand to do some of those activities in person. And that's gonna trump a virtual venue. But what we really love about Looped is they've built this extremely compelling user experience for a horizontal approach, which is everything from musicians like the ushers of the world to actors and actresses, you know, the biggest you can think of to politicians, you know, Michelle Obama's used this, 
um, to um, athletes like Kevin Durant and Russell Wilson, to comedians, right? This idea that you can really facilitate this virtual experience where I can coordinate ticketed events and then engage the audience, right? I can bring, you know, out of the hundred people I have with me in this event, I could bring one or two of them on stage for a bit and I can speak with them, I can connect with them and then um, send them back into the audience. So they've really thought, I think, given how competitive this space is, is getting, you've got to be focused on product innovation. And that's always what these guys, like these guys are hustlers, as, as, as mentioned by the people that they've already gotten to. Clearly they're hustlers and, and you know they're working hard to network. But above all else, they've always been focused on how are we innovating from a product perspective so we can win this competitive market. So that generally in the creator space is a company we're very bullish on. So you know Sandeep at Loops? Sandeep, of course, yeah. So when I was first starting the podcast, Sandeep reached out to me and said, hey, I'm in LA, let's get some coffee. And so I met up with Sandeep, must have now been like a year and a half ago or so, and he was telling me about Looped. And he was actually one of the first companies that was featured in my private newsletter, funnily enough. When I was like, you know, how I have like three to five companies in each issue. Uh, Loop was one of the first companies that was featured in there. So super small world. That is too funny. What a small, I had no idea. I had no idea. So, so I was fortunate enough to partner with those guys. And to your point of how long you met those guys, they got a lot of no's at the beginning, right? Like a lot of people didn't see the vision. And they pivoted. I remember them going from... Uh, like initially like a B2C product and more so on with the B2B side. Yeah, and they're facilitating both sides of the marketplace. But to your point, they really let the market dictate the product, which I think was smart. You know, to all of these points earlier about willpower and grit and tenacity, these guys have that in spades because they took all the no's, they got stronger, they got sharper on their pitch, they refined the product. And to hear the traction, the GMV these guys are pushing out now is incredible. They've been growing like a weed, you know, incredibly fast. So we've been very excited to partner with them, very fortunate to partner with those guys, particularly not, not only because of the product and the market and the tailwinds there, but because of the people. Totally. And I mean, like, they really do hustle. I mean, like, they're, they're awesome. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? The best piece of advice I've received, particularly, so this this struck a chord with me as I was fundraising. And I think, I actually think about this a lot, particularly when I, anytime I feel overwhelmed or maybe I'm being hard on myself or oh, I wish I got this or that done today, which is, you know, any, I mean, you know this, right? That's the daily struggle of any entrepreneur, right? Or any self-employed person. And I think the advice I got was just get on the treadmill, right? Which means just do a little bit every day. Right. If you could do a little, and this was told to me by a, a much more um, senior, older um, investor. And he said, if you can just do a little bit every day, no matter how you're feeling, you'll look back in a decade and be shocked at how much progress you've made. Right. And so this, it sounds simple, but I think the urge when you're just starting something or when you're an entrepreneur is, man, I, it's got to be intensity always. I've got to be working 24 hours a day. And, but I, I think what that leads to is like sporadic improvement or like little spurts of progress. And this sort of advice really struck a chord with me. And I found this to be important as we were starting World Ventures and previously as we were raising capital at product companies, which is consistency over intensity, right? You know, you try to do both, but if I had to pick one, it'd be the former. I choose consistency every time because again, those little actions 
add up. And if you can just focus on, on doing one or two productive things and just being consistent about that day in and day out, that's more important than having the one day a week you kill yourself, right? And so that to me was one of the most important pieces of advice I've received. What's your one piece of advice that you have for founders? The piece of advice I have for founders, the most important habit my co-founder and I had raising Will Ventures is polite persistence. Follow up with people. Everyone's busy. And it's really true that the squeaky tire gets the oil. You've got you've to be thoughtful about your follow-up and you've got to be polite in your follow-up, but you've got to be persistent because you're never initially going to be someone's top priority and you've got to make it make yourself that, right? In addition to that, in related, it's, it's hold people accountable, right? And that's part of the persistence, which is someone tells you they're going to do something. Most people are good people. They, they, they mean well. They wouldn't say that unless they meant it, but everyone gets busy and everyone has a million priorities. Everyone has work. Everyone has family. So if someone tells you they're going to do something, hold them accountable politely, right? Hey, I know you mentioned you were going to make this intro or do this thing. Just wanted to check up here, right? And set yourself reminders so you can continue to follow up. But follow up until you get an answer because that's what it takes, I think, to really make progress. I totally agree. I love that polite uh, persistence. I don't think we've heard that yet on the podcast. So you're super original, Brian. You're super original. (laughs) Brian, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, brother. I really enjoyed it, man. You're really thoughtful questions. Again, love the show, love the content. Um, So thanks so much for having me join. No, thank you. I really appreciate you being here. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Brian. You can catch him on Twitter at Brian Riley VC. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 